Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. Our text is John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. We will finish up the chapter here. Um, This is a chapter that has began for us. The private conversation of Jesus and his disciples. We talked about previously how Jesus, of course, had washed the disciples' feet. He announces that he's going to be betrayed and as we went through that passage, we were discussing you know, that Judas, under the control of, of Satan at this point, he left in the moment that Jesus had told him to leave. He says, what you do, do quickly. And Judas, obeying the Lord, went out and was doing that very thing. So the betrayal is underway. And now our Lord's going to turn his attention to those that that are truly His. And He's going to disclose to them an even greater detail of things than He would have if Judas was there. It's kind of like, you know, you have certain people that that maybe cause trouble or that stir up things, and when they come into the midst of a conversation, you really just kind of slow down a little bit, and you don't really say the things that you really want to say because they're there. And so there's a little bit of anxiousness there, perhaps, a little bit of let's be general in things, uh, kind of vague. But then whenever they leave, then you feel more freely to disclose the things that you really want to tell those that are there. It's in a, in a similar, similar vein there that our Lord is now going to express the fullness of a number of different subjects now uh, to his inner circle there, uh, at least to the 11 rather. As Judas now is gone, The betrayer has left. He is uh, going to the religious leaders as Jesus is getting ready to uh, give his farewell address to his disciples. This is an amazing uh, portion of Scripture here as we really begin to contemplate what all Jesus is beginning to tell them. He's going to announce to them a new commandment I give you. Now, in the sense of being new, it's not really new. But because of what it is grounded in, this command is given, and it is, in a sense, a new commandment because it has a newer foundation. It has a greater example. And that greater example is that of love, of loving one another. This is, this is what Jesus is leaving to his disciples in the night in which he's being betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, all of this that's going to take place. And the very thing that he begins to say to his disciples is love one another. It's not really, you know, if you knew some bad things were coming up in someone's life, you might want to sit down and be like, okay, I have to leave, but here's some things that are going to happen to you. You know, this is what I know is coming down the pike for you. Well, instead of announcing the very things uh, as far as what's going to happen at the end of their lives, or these are the things you're going to endure, Jesus says none of that. He he uh, summarizes it all down to this, love one another. This is the most important aspect of what it is to be a Christian is to love one another. That is the telltale trait of a true child of God is to love one another. We can think of a number of different things that are are traits within the Christian faith that we are to exemplify in our lives. Being kind and being just and all of this sort of thing of walking in obedience to the law of God, all of that. But it really comes down to this. The world's going to know that you're one of His by the love that you have for one another. That's the supreme ethic, is love. It's not, as we've talked about a number of times, this isn't just a love that has no meaning or a love that has no grounding in truth. This is the love that we have been shown by our Lord Jesus by all that He's doing. And this kind of love is the kind of love that glorifies Him. This is the kind of love that glorifies the Father. It's the kind of love that testifies to the world of the One whom we call Lord. Love is the greatest of 
the, the characteristics of a true child of God. For all that it accomplishes within our own lives and the lives of others. And how, interestingly, how much the Christian life can impact even a secular world. So Let's look at this passage together. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. We'll read verse 2, verse 38. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And let us hear what the word of God says. Verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we come to honor you this day, honor you with our lips, honor you with our hearts. And so, Father, we, we desire the Spirit of God to do a mighty work within us, to stir within our hearts the truths that are contained in this passage that we would grow in our understanding of you, in our desire for you, in our desire to walk before you in a manner that's pleasing to you. Father, do this mighty work. Shape us and mold us to be whatever you desire, that we will be your ambassadors here on this earth until the day that you call us home. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> <clears throat> so Judas leaves the room. Judas is gone. Satan has entered Judas. As we read of in verse 27, as Jesus hands Judas the, the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And we talked about that, that it was meaning that whatever you plan to do, do it quicker than what you initially had planned. And again, as we were talking about how Jesus is demonstrating His deity throughout all of this gospel, really, that this is another evidence of it in which He commands Judas, go do it now. And Judas doesn't say, well, Lord, I was going to wait until after the supper was over or whatever, and then I had some business to do. He says, go do it now and do it quickly. And what does Judas do? Possessed even by Satan. There's no, there's no pushback even from Satan. Why? Because Satan is under the sovereign control of his Lord. And he says, go. And therefore Satan, possessing Judas, they get up and they are going to go begin working with the religious leaders. After this happens, this is, remember, this is a time in which Jesus has girded himself. He's washed the disciples' feet. He's washed even Judas's feet. He still shows kindness to Judas, even in view of his betrayal, as we talked about last week. Even show him kindness and showing him blessing, as most likely Judas was at the, the left hand of the Lord, reclining there, a place of honor, and to eat from the master's, uh, the master's plate. I mean, Jesus was continually showing him kindness and even offering him blessing until the time had come. And Jesus then says, in view of all that's getting ready to happen, Judas is left. He says, therefore, 
when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. It's at this moment in which Jesus announces to his disciples, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now this could be a few different ways to understand this. It could be the kindness that Jesus has shown in the the few moments beforehand in which Jesus was continually kind even to a, a person in rebellion against him that is plotting against him. The kindness that he's showing is showing forth the, the glory of God, the splendor of God, as God is indeed kind to all. We talk about God's common grace, and we talk about how God's common grace is extended to all people. Whether they are believers or unbelievers, God is still kind. He has The disposition of his attitude towards them is one of kindness, and he does kind things for them. That is a way that Jesus himself was responding even to Judas. And therefore, God was being glorified in Christ because in everything that Jesus does, He is manifesting the Father. He is manifesting the very character of God in everything that He does. And that was actually the first thing that we had read, one of the first things we had read in John's Gospel is that in verse, uh, we'll jump in verse 16, for of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were revealed through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. So everything that Jesus does... Every word that he speaks, every action that he does is manifesting the very character and nature of God to a dark world. So in that, he is being glorified as the Father is pleased with him and he is glorifying the Father. They have the same mission, if you will. The Lord Jesus is magnifying, honoring him, his splendor being displayed through him. And with the dismissal of Judas, the mission of Christ has reached its decisive stage. Because by means of Jesus' obedience, of His love, He would be glorified. And the Father would be glorified in Him. You know, this is the amazing thing to think about. Instead of avoiding what is getting ready to happen, Because Jesus knows that Judas is going out for the very purpose to go conspire with the religious leaders and to get everything moving. It's like maybe when we're outside and we're visiting with our families or whatever and you look up and you see the storm clouds coming in, the very thing that we do is we need to go inside. Jesus, on the other hand, He heads right into the storm. Into the storm of God's wrath. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't seek any other way to avoid it. But he walks right into its path. And soon enough, the storm of God's wrath would descend upon him. William Hendrickson writes this. Whenever we think of Christ's suffering, we never know what to admire most. Whether it be the voluntary self-surrender of the Son to such a death for such a people or the willingness of the father to give up such a son to such a death for such a people. The son is going to be most glorified in the cross in a time in which most people would think this is the the, the defeat. This is the end is the time of his greatest glorification because it's at the cross that all redemptive history converges on the cross. There is no greater event in human history than the cross. It's in the cross that we see the righteous judgment of God. It's in the cross that we see not only His justice, but in His wrath, but His his great love that He has. Another says this, now bringing to a climax a theme developed throughout this gospel, the evangelist makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of the cross. 
The Lord said in Isaiah 49, verse 3, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. In the life of our Lord, the Father displayed His splendor. And in the death of our Lord, our Lord displayed His splendor. He says, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. There are a few things that Jesus is is saying, these, these certainties that, that He will be glorified, God will be glorified, and God is going to glorify Him immediately. And it's very interesting that Jesus uses, in speaking of the glory that He is to receive, He uses that, that designation, Son of Man. It's as if He's bringing back to the disciples' remembrance of what that term really entails. Because if you think about the Son of Man, that title being used in the Old Testament, that is one of majesty and one of glory. And a great example of that is found in Daniel chapter 7. And remember, Jesus says that God is glorified in Him and God is going to glorify Him immediately. This is going to happen very soon in which the Father will glorify the Son. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, we read these words. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the prophecy of the Lord Jesus. This is, in my personal opinion, in the opinions of others, I don't want to say it's mine because it isn't. But this is what happened after the ascension of Christ. This text is used in a lot of times by those that want to apply it to the rapture of our Lord or the second coming of our Lord, that He's coming on the clouds of heaven and this is a passage that they go to. But notice something here. He's not coming to earth. He's going to the Ancient of Days. He's ascending to Him. Just as our Lord in the book of Acts was taken up in a cloud and so He will return in the same way. He's taken up in a cloud and, and the description here is, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and He came up to the Ancient of Days. And you see the glory and the majesty that was granted to Christ upon His completed work in which the Father would glorify Him. Because He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples would serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. What was it that happened upon Christ's completed work? Well, we're told there and we're told as well in Philippians chapter 2. The Scripture tells us Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father exalted the Son. The Father glorified the Son. He gave Him glory and power and dominion and a kingdom upon His ascension. After completing His work and during the shame of the cross, He ascends to the Father. He's presented before the Father. He receives all the power and praise of those that are in heaven. And you see that also in Revelation 5, by the way, which is also a parallel passage of Daniel chapter 7 of what happened after the ascension of Christ. You see all the angelic hosts in Revelation 5. They are praising Him and honoring Him, magnifying Him. So the very reality of what he's saying 
to his disciples absolutely came to pass. Christ was glorified and the Father was glorified in him. The greatest aspect of the glory of God is not seen in any Old Testament occurrence, really. There were some amazing things that happened there. Some amazing wonders by our Lord in which he did displaying his glory. But the greatest, the greatest revelation of God's glory and the greatest revelation of his self-disclosure was in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything that he says, everything that he does manifests the glory of his father and the splendor of the father. And the greatest work in which he will accomplish will put all of that on display for the world to see. One of the greatest attributes that's put on display there is truly the love of God. Yet we ask why? Why is it that Jesus did what he did? Why would he have died for rebels like us? Why would he have done that? And the answer goes back to this. Because of God's love. That's why. Many times when we read of, of God's love, it's always in conjunction with the fact of him sending the Son. For God so loves the world, he sends the Son. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In 1 John 4, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One of the greatest attributes of God that glorifies him, that magnifies him, that magnifies his very being and his nature. One of them, not the particular one, but one of them. Is God's love. And I say that. I only preface it with that. Because the greatest attribute of God. That is, that is emphasized throughout all scripture. More so than any other. Is that God is holy. And his holiness is the sum of all the divine attributes. So when we talk about his love. And his love being put on display. And his love magnifying his very nature. It's a holy love. So let us not forget that. John Calvin says this in the cross of Christ as a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The goodness of God in sending the son. The son being willing to come. For this is what it takes in order to redeem sinful man. Nothing else would have been good enough. Nothing else would have sufficed. It had to be that if man was going to be redeemed, that it took the death of the only begotten of the Father. It took Him being our propitiation. The willingness of the Son to endure the divine wrath of the Father, the righteous indignation of the Father in place of sinful persons. And He done it for all His people. We look back in the Old Testament at times and we say, well, well, how were those people saved back in the Old Testament? It was not by the works of the law because the writer of Hebrews says by the works of the law. Uh, well, actually, Paul says that by the works of the law, no flesh will be saved. The writer of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient. So when you look at the necessity of the cross and the love of God being demonstrated in the cross, it wasn't just for those that came after. It was to demonstrate the love that he had for those prior to everyone's redemption centered upon Christ Jesus died for Moses he died for Abraham he died for Jacob he died for for Israel he, he died he died for all the saints that are in the Old Testament and that is the the supreme demonstration of his love the willingness of the father to give the son and the willingness of the son to give himself and in that God is absolutely glorified and the son is glorified 
And that really sets the foundation for what he what he sets into then thereafter. Speaking of his glorification, then he moves in to speaking directly to them. He says, little children, this this is expresses affection on the part of our Lord. I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. This is going to be a little different here in a moment. And we'll go back and we'll see what he what he had said to the Jews beforehand. But he announces his departure to them. You're going to look for me. And as I said to the Jews. Where I'm going, you can't come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, this is a very amazing thing that he's speaking of. Because he's revealing the glory of the Father. He's revealing his own glory through the work of redemption, through everything that he's accomplished there for, uh, up to this point as well. And what's put on display for us is the love of God. This is the love of God to you. This is the love of God manifested to you when you don't deserve it. And what does he do? He takes this example, this supreme example of God's love, and then he puts it to the disciples and he says, as I have loved you in this way, you ought also to love one another. You know, it's, it's amazing to think of this in the sense of, you know, we have a, a tendency, and, and rightly so, it's not a, not a bad thing, of course, uh, to desire heaven you know we want to we want to go to heaven we want to be there and it would just be so much easier if it was if it was just possible for us after our conversion just to go uh, wouldn't that be an amazing thing you're converted now you go and we long for heaven and we long for the benefits of being in the presence of God to no longer struggle with sin and no longer fail and no longer stumble and all of those things that we that we yearn for in this life But the way that we must go is in the same way that our Lord went. In the sense of your appointed time will come, but before your appointed time comes, the task and the marching orders of the people of God is this, that you love one another. And as you love one another, you manifest the very character of Christ to the world. Christ was in the world and he was demonstrating that love and he was teaching about that love. And then when he's taken up to ascend into heaven, who then expresses that love? But the people of God. The people of God express the love that is from our Lord Jesus. We walk in this world through the, or rather in the power of the Holy Spirit of God who is now Christ's presence on earth who empowers us to carry out these very things. And as we love and as we do good unto each other and as we live in view of eternity in the midst of a dark world, then we are demonstrating and manifesting the glory of Christ just as Christ manifested the glory of His Father. You know, one of the great charges of many atheists is, you know, well, actually you probably heard it as well, was that one German philosopher said, <clears throat> Something to the effect of, I like your Savior, but I don't like your people. Why? Because oftentimes we don't do a really good job of this. Because what does it take to carry this out? The word that he uses here is agape. I have loved you with this selfless sacrificial love. And the same selfless sacrificial love is to how you're, you're to love one another. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. It's not based on affection. You know, in the Greek, we have a few different words for, for love. You have storge, which is the parental love. You have eros, which is the sensual love. You have phileo, which is the affectionate love. And then you have agape, which is none of that, but is all selfless, sacrificial love that really brings meaning to all these other ones. Even when you don't feel like it, you do it. And you be selfless and sacrificial to each other in view of the selflessness and the sacrificial nature that Christ Himself shown to us. 
And it could be in a number of different instances or situations. You can just throw some in there. But in the moment in which maybe you're tired and you just want to go home or you want to go do this or whatever, and you have people that are standing before you that need an encouragement from you or that need to, to hear the Word of God from you that, are, that it needs to unburden themselves to somebody because they're going through something difficult. And the very thing that we think to ourselves is often, I really just want to go home. I really want to go do this. But you know what being selfless and sacrificial is? In one sense, I may not feel like doing it, but I'm going to give my attention to this person because they are in need. They are in need of encouragement. They are in need of love and of kindness to them. And so I'm going to give them my attention. I'm not just going to stand there and shake my head and let it go in one and out the other just so I can say, well, that's very interesting and go on. You might as well be a secular psychiatrist. Well, what does this mean to you? Never giving any, any, any other explanation of things. It's not just being there with your presence and sacrificing the time that you're there, but it's giving your attention there too. It's giving all of yourself to whoever needs you. That's being selfless and that's being sacrificial with your time. Time is one of the, the main things that we don't like to sacrifice. If somebody needs 20 bucks, hey, here you go, here's 20 bucks. Because in the two seconds it takes you to give $20, you can move along and go do whatever you want. When you give your time to somebody, that's a little bit different. Then you have to put some effort into it. Effort that is glorifying to the Lord to demonstrate the selfless, sacrificial love of the agape love that we are to have with one another. It's interesting, he calls it a new commandment. And again, it's not because it's a new one. The Lord had commanded, love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus chapter 19. So that's not a new commandment. But J.C. Ryle says this, it's called a new commandment, not because it had never been given before, but because it was to be more honored, to occupy a higher position, to be backed up by a higher example than it ever had been before. In light of the work of Christ, in light of His giving of Himself in place of sinners, it brings an even greater meaning to what love is and what love should be. And therefore, based on His redemptive work that had never been done in, in the history of mankind before, it's called the New Commandment. And as we do this, and as we love one another, we demonstrate to the world that we are disciples of Christ. You know, this is a very interesting thing here. Um, you know, this text is read all the time at weddings, defining love, but that's not what it's meant to be. 1 Corinthians 13. The love that exists here in 1 Corinthians 13 is not intended to be confined to a marriage. He's speaking to a church. This is the kind of love that is to be manifested among the people of God. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, beginning of verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, and that is a huge one right there. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. You know, we were talking about this earlier in our Sunday school class. One of the big problems that we have as believers is that of forgiveness. And we, we hear things and we say things like, you know, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm never going to forget. Well, obviously. You're not going to forget. But what does it mean? It means that I'm no longer going to hold this against you. I'm no longer going to bring it against you ever again. I don't take into account a wrong that was suffered. If you forgive somebody, then it's done. You may remember, but you never bring it back up against them again. 
That's the essence of forgiveness. And that is exactly what happens in our relationship to the Lord. When the Lord forgives us, and we read of those passages that He cast our sins as far as the east from the west, never to remember them no more. He throws them into the sea of forgetfulness, all that kind of language. It's not that God somehow makes Himself forget because God cannot not know something. He knows all things. And He knows all things in the past, in the future, in the present. He knows it perfectly. But what does it mean? It means that He's no longer going to hold it against us. Because in Christ, Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. And that sin is no longer held to our charge. That's the example of forgiveness. And that's exactly what our Lord, or excuse me, what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the kind of love that exists among the people of God does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the kind of love that exists among the people of God. That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about to His disciples. Love each other in this way. And we say, well, I just, I don't feel like it. It doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. And the amazing thing is, is that when you begin to do for another and you begin to take those steps in order to to show that kind of love that he's talking about, then it is your heart that changes. Because the Lord does a work in you as you are seeking to honor him through manifesting that love to another. And by this, all men will know. That you have that, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This power is granted to us in the Holy Spirit of God. It can only be done in the Spirit of God. And that's why we have to seek His, His, His work in our life to change us and to shape us and to mold us and to make us willing to carry out what we know is right. This is genuine, deep-seated, constant self-sacrificing love for one another. Manifesting the glorious qualities of our Lord as we do so. The world will know that we are His disciples. It's very interesting that one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, writing in the 3rd century, he actually speaks of uh, how the Christian faith is impacting even the pagan world. That the pagans, though they're not believers, of course, that they're taking notice of, of the Christians being known for their love for one another. That's pretty amazing. Even the pagans are looking at the Christians going, wow. You have even atheists that give a lot of credence to the Christian faith in that respect. One guy had written, I can't remember if it was an article or a book called Atheists in Praise of Christianity. And he says this, this is very interesting. He says, those who make arguments based on love, tolerance, and compassion are borrowing fundamentally from Christian arguments. This is an atheist who's saying things like this. And how Christianity redefined the world. This other writer, he is an atheist as well. And he really, he, he's speaking in his uh, writing there, Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world. Speaking of how the Christian faith had such an impact on uh, the barbarism that was in the pagan world. Of how the Christian faith manifested the value of humanity and changed the world. Even unbelievers take notice of things like that. It's pretty amazing to think that by following what the Lord says, doing what the Lord says, following in obedience, seeking His glory above our own, ends up having such an impact on the world that we could never imagine. Simon Peter, he speaks up and he says, it's like he doesn't even hear things at times. It's like he's just waiting for him to stop talking so he can say something again. 
He says, where are you going? That's all he's concerned about. Where are you going? And our Lord says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will later. Now, when he talked to the Jews earlier on, he didn't say that. He spoke to the Jews in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, I think it's chapter 7. He says in verse 33 and 34, Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. And he says even more in chapter 8, verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now Jesus talking to the religious leaders, I mean, that's the very thing that he's saying to them is where I'm going, you're not permitted to come. And you're going to die in your sins. But he doesn't say that to his disciples. He doesn't say that to Peter. He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will later. And that's the great promise of our Lord. Is that you will later. At your appointed time, you will. But until that appointed time, the very thing that you are to do in the time that God has given to you is to glorify His name on the earth, loving one another and following in obedience. We long for heaven, but heaven will come at God's appointed time. We long to have a life of ease, and indeed we will at God's appointed time. But the time in which we're here now, we have our orders. And it's not really a difficult one when you consider things. It's a lot of putting my pride aside. My arrogance aside. And being willing to seek out the interest of others rather than my own. It's about preferring others above myself. And loving one another in that way. Until my appointed time comes. Love those that are easy to love. Love those that are difficult to love. No one ever said that it would necessarily be the carrying out part easy. We know it's easy in the sense that we know exactly what we're to do. There's no guessing. But you love those that are easy to love and you love those that are difficult to love. Some people are hard to to love. It's difficult at times because you've got to put effort in to love them through the difficulties to love them through the, the times that it just it seems ridiculous. But you love them in spite of all of those things. And you help to bring them along. And you help to nurture them. And you help to cultivate godliness in them. And you help to keep pointing them back to Christ and the love that we have in Him. So we are to be selfless and sacrificial. To be giving. Be generous. And will we... Make mistakes. Yes. Yes, we will. And we see that with Peter. Peter says to the Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. There's a little bit of truth here. A little bit of error. Because when it's one particular situation, Peter's ready to draw his sword and cut off somebody's ear. But then when it seems as if perhaps Christ and his mission is defeated, as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, arrested, being beaten, spat upon, then it's a little different situation with Peter. Then Peter's going to deny that he knows him. He's not going to stand boldly against those as he'd done in the garden when Jesus was right next to him. Think of this. Jesus tells Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Are you sure that's what you're ready to do? Because in reality, reality, he's not. 
He's not ready to do that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. You're going to deny you even know me. And this is so encouraging to think of this. And it's a terrible situation when you look at it because, I mean, here's Peter. This is the one who oftentimes the spokesman for the group. Oftentimes saying the wrong thing, but he speaks up nonetheless. But he's going to deny him three times. Say he doesn't even know him. He's going to, he's going to curse when he does it. Just to be even more emphatic, I don't know the man. And yet in spite of the failures that Jesus knew that Peter was going to do, even in the short hours that were to come, as you go back to the first part of John chapter 13, he loved them to the fullest. He loved Peter even in spite of his failures. Even in spite of the fact that he would even deny that he even knew him. What kind of love is that? That's an incomprehensible love that Christ has for us. That even in view of the failures and how we stumble, not one degree of His love towards us ever fails. It's never diminished, ever. You know that Christ loves you to the fullest extent even right now. There is no more that you can gain of God's love because it's all given to you. You have it all. And in the times that you fail, in the times that you sin, in the times that you commit even, even gross sin, terrible sin, not one degree of His love has left you. Ever. Because you're His. And you're forever His. And in the day that we stand before the Lord, the very things that we struggle with here will be perfected in that day. And that's one thing that we do have to look forward to. He loves us even in spite of all the things that we do. All of our selfishness, all of our pride and arrogance. He still loves us regardless. To the fullest, He still loves us. And that is our great example. That we should love one another with that kind of love. even when you feel like wrongs have been suffered against you, even if you don't mesh well with others. The Lord didn't say, just love those that have a similar personality as you do. Only love those that have the same interest as you do. Only love those that have the same experiences as, you, as you've had. No. We show a love to all of the household of faith. Regardless. And we keep doing that until the day the Lord calls us home. And just as our Lord had to suffer in the time in which He was here, glorifying His Father and everything that occurred, everything that happened to Him, at God's appointed time, He exalted Him. And that's the promise that we have in Christ, is that at His appointed time, you can come. And you'll be glorified in Him in the time that you come. And you'll have rest from your labors. And we will only know perfection and loving the Lord with perfect love. So we've got to be bold. We have to be vigilant. We have to be dedicated. We have to be committed. What is it that you desire to do most while you're here? The answer should be, I want to glorify Christ as much as I can. As much time as that God permits me, I want to glorify Him. So, in view of that, don't waste your time. Moses says in Psalm 90, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And as Jonathan Edwards said, speaking of those that are on their deathbed, how they would give anything to have a moment of your time. And he says, descend with me to the very bowels of hell 
and I will show you those that would give anything to have one moment of your time. So redeem the time because the days are evil. Take back the time and use it for the glory of Christ our Redeemer. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank You so much for what love that You display. How You sent Christ Jesus to be our propitiation, to be our satisfaction, to satisfy Your justice, to take upon Himself all our sins. Thank You for His willingness to do that. None of us here were deserving of it. None of us here merited that. But He freely gave Himself. Thank You so much for loving us even when we didn't love You. Thank You for showing us kindness when all that we desired to do was to rebel against You. Father, thank You so much for this great salvation. Help us. Provide for us all that we need in order to live a life that is glorifying to Christ in which Christ will be magnified through us in this dark world. Father, use us as instruments in Your hand to accomplish all that You desire. Thank You. That's all we can ever say is thank You. We can never repay You. It would be an insult to try. For what could we render to You after You gave the Lord Jesus to us? Nothing is in comparison to Him. But help us, Lord, to live a life that demonstrates our appreciation and our gratefulness for all that You've done for us. And for us to start here with this supreme ethic of loving one another. Help us to love one another, to prefer one another, that You would be honored. Thank You so much for this passage, for all that it teaches us. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.